Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Exploring the Rings. I don't even remember what I'm doing. Hey, welcome to Exploring Lord of the Rings. Uh, so I am uh, uh, delighted to join you guys tonight, not only as I am in, delighted to join you guys every week, but of course, <clears throat> this week happens to be the 111st episode uh, of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And by coincidence, the 111st episode is the one in which we're supposed to uh, meet Bilbo again. Um, the reunion with Bilbo uh, at episode 111 is is kind of cool. It's kind of fun. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah. So that's uh, that's uh, a, a a a a a fun day, a fun coincidence uh, of that. And I wanted to uh, I wanted to celebrate uh, a little bit uh, our 111st. Uh, 11-1 is of course uh, a rather peculiar number. Um, and quite a respectable number. It's quite a respectable age for a hobbit, we were told back in chapter one. And it's certainly quite a respectable number of episodes uh, for anyone to have followed along in this longest-running analysis of The Lord of the Rings ever. Um, I still think we may, before the end comes, uh, set a record for like longest-running uh, uh, continuous analysis of any secular book uh, in the history of the world, frankly. <laughs> but we'll see. Um, uh, anyway, so um, yeah, Tony. We were, oh yeah, we were originally going to be done well before eleven d one. What was I projecting, Tony? You just listened to them recently. Was I? I was projecting something like fifty, right? Episodes, uh, something like that. Yeah, fifty-ish. That's what I thought I said on the first day of class. Uh, anyway, um, so this is, uh, uh, but so again, very significant number. So I, I want to kind of celebrate a little bit that, uh, you know, that you guys all persevering to episode 111 with me. So I want to do what we've done in the past, just, uh, uh, you know, a little kind of thank you, uh, thing. I want to do a drawing, uh, for some, some presents, right. To give away presents on the birthday of the show here, the 111st, uh, episode birthday, um, uh, so, uh, we're going to do, and this is something I've done in the past, but, uh, uh, I've, uh, you know, enjoyed doing this before. Uh, and that is, um, if you, um, uh, uh, so, so send an email, uh, if you just send an email to info at signumu.org, uh, and just mention that you'd like to enter the drawing. We like to do it this way. We can do a live drawing through Twitch. That's easy enough to do. Uh, Moobot is very helpful there. Um, but we're not going to do that just because we, we like I like to include the folks who can't attend uh, in person, either because this is at a wildly inconvenient time for them, such as, for instance, our European listeners for whom it is uh, already late at night or the middle uh, middle of the night, really. Um, or, uh, you know, again, I was just other folks who can't uh, be here live and who listen to the, you know, the podcast when it's posted or watch the video asynchronously. So uh, um, just in the next two weeks. You know, between now and, uh, uh, and wait, what's two weeks from now? Uh, say between now and August, actually, let's go to August 16th. Uh, between now and August 16th, if you email uh, info at signumu.org and just say you want to enter the Exploring the Lord of the Rings drawing, um, uh, then we'll enter you into the drawing and we will give away two, uh, two things. We'll give away two things. We will get, well, well, we'll give away two instances and you have two choices. If you win, uh, you, you, you can choose between one, 
the uh, the the ticket a free ticket to the regional moot of your choice the the the, the signum moot of your choice and secondly uh, we will give you a um, uh, or, or if you can't make it to any of our regional moots, uh, we will give you uh, a seat to any uh, anytime audit uh, that you would like from any of our Signum courses. So those are the two things uh, that you can choose between an anytime audit course or a free ticket to the any regional moot of your choice. Um, uh, anytime during uh, during this coming year. So those are the those are the those are the things we're going to give away. As I say, just send an email info at signumu.org, uh, and we will be uh, we will be happy to get that to you. Um, anyway, so oh Sam, hey, I didn't see that you were here. Yeah, see, some dedicated Europeans are still uh, with us. It's what f- almost four a.m. Uh, over there. Yeah, you're in Scandinavia, right, Sam? Is, is it? Uh, is that right? Am, am I remembering that correctly? I'm trying to remember which country you're living in. Is it Sweden? Is that where you are? Uh, I seem to remember once or twice it coming up, but I've, uh, um, I had, I had forgotten Sweden. Okay, that's what I thought. Yes, tr- the truly dedicated people attending at uh, 4 a.m. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so again, yeah, happy to uh, have you enter the drawing. Uh, that that'll be a lot of fun. Um, so let's, uh, other than that, jump straight into uh, our discussion here tonight. So the first thing that I wanted to do, so I, I called this session a longing fulfilled, as of course we are going to get at least up close to the fulfillment. Uh, I hope to get at least two slides tonight, um, which will bring us right up to the cusp of uh, Frodo's longing being fulfilled, and we'll see how far we can go. Um, but... Of course, we've been looking at reunions, right? Many Meetings has been one series of reunion after another, and we are approaching uh, the big one, right? The surprise one that has been kind of, uh, that they've been kind of waiting to spring on Frodo here um, after, uh, even after the initial feast. And no one has yet told him uh, that his uncle Bilbo is there in Rivendell, that he, and he hasn't seen him yet, right? Uh, so that's what we're building up to here uh, with... Uh, um, you know, with the, the last, uh, I say it's the last, um, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's quite fair, uh, to call it the last. Um, but well, I guess not because actually he hasn't been reunited with Strider yet. Right. So that's still, that's still yet to come. But, um, but anyway, um, the next and certainly the most momentous of the reunions that Frodo is going to have here, uh, in the many meetings chapter. Um, all right. Uh, first, a, a, an observation from Darren Gray, uh, which I thought was a really great one um, from uh, uh, the stuff we dis- discussed in episode 109 um, with Frodo and Glowen. He says, much was made in episode 109 of the politeness of Frodo and Glowen in their interaction and hinting at secrets. But I wanted to bring up how, how this wonderfully foreshadows the next chapter and hooks the reader in. When Glowen says, Master Elrond will summon us all ere long, I believe, and then we shall all hear many things, he is predicting the council quite accurately. But the we includes the reader, too. 
Tolkien never likes to throw surprises at us when a heap of foreshadowing can be piled on first, and this is a key piece. It's equating Frodo's tale with Glowen's tale in their reluctance to speak openly, and so opens the reader's mind to the idea that Frodo's perilous journey is just a part of what's going on, and there's a lot more to find out. It gives intrigue and excitement for the tales to be told. In addition, in this chapter, we get a bunch of other tasters of events that will be fleshed out in the next chapter. The delay of Gandalf, the lineage of Aragorn, the fate of Balin, and the Dark Lord putting forth his strength. I think uh, th- these are just. this is just a wonderful observation. I don't have too very much to add uh, to Darren's observation here, but I think he's absolutely right. Uh, notice that even the way that he's... Uh, the way that he was framing that at the end about um, how uh, the, how the reader's mind is open to the idea that Frodo's perilous journey is just a part of what's going on, right? Um, that is very close, of course, to what Elrond will actually say in the council, right? Um, each one of them come to the council. All, almost all of the different members of the of the council come there with some kind of story, right? Some kind of alarming. Um, alarming concern uh, about something that's going on in their homelands. And for each one of them, they doubtless think uh, that this is a, um, you know, that this is a major, like, this is like the big thing that this is the story, right? It's the main thing that's going on. I mean, between um, uh, what happened with Balin uh, in Moria and the, you know, sort of the radio silence that Erebor has been receiving from Moria lately, combined with the messengers from Mordor that have come to their gates, right? This is sort of a big deal, right? They have, uh, Glowen has come with momentous news. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and of course, we have the story of the, uh, the treason of Isengard, right? So there's so many things um, that are happening and that everyone has yet to learn. Frodo's story is, you know, arguably the biggest one, the Ring of Power, but still, it is only a part of one great thing. And, you know, I can't help but reflect, and I, here I'm, I'm swayed by the fact that uh, in the Mythgard Academy sessions on Wednesday nights, we've been going through, we've just finished, actually, uh, the history of the Lord of the Rings, looking through uh, Christopher Tolkien's uh, sort of assembly of all of the, the, the kind of the manuscript progress of how the Lord of the Rings developed as a story. It's absolutely fascinating. Really, really, it's been really fun. Uh, we've been studying that for a couple of years now, actually, since we started The Return of the Shadow. But we just finished the epilogue, the unpunished, the un, unpunished, unpublished epilogue, uh, the last bit of the history of the Lord of the Rings and we started the Notion Club papers last week. But anyway, um, so the the history stuff, the manuscript stuff is very much in my mind. And I can't help but think about how this process was also um, a, uh, a, a process of discovery in the same kind of way for Tolkien himself, right? Just as Frodo comes and, you know, understandably might think that his is like the main story, right? He's even been told that the feast is in his honor and it's been timed with his getting out of bed. We hear, uh, as Darren points out, in this encounter with Glowen, we, we, both we, the readers, and Frodo get kind of corrected about that. Again, not to diminish the, the importance of his role, but we begin to see, hey, this isn't the whole story, right? It's just one part of a larger story that's involving all of Middle-earth right now. But again... When Tolkien got to Rivendell, right, in writing the story, he didn't know that either. Um, 
and uh, so it's it's kind of a fun sort of parallel of and 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 just always fun to see uh, Tolkien kind of on that same journey uh, as well. Um, and Arden Crayon, yeah, it's true. Uh, poor Boromir missed the feast, right? Talk about somebody else who comes believing that he has the. Um, you know, he, he has come to Rivendell with, uh, uh, you know, on a portentous, uh, well, literally, in his case, a portentous mission. It's a mission about a portent, right? Um, uh, uh, and, and of course, again, discovers that it's, uh, it's only one small piece of the whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tarlonio opines that Faramir would have totally made it to the feast. Right? It's just uh, one more proof of uh, who is really supposed to be coming on that on that journey. Um, uh, you know, maybe Tarlonio can't, can't disprove it, right? Maybe maybe Faramir would have made slightly better time. Probably wouldn't have lost his horse at Tharbat. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, Matt, it's true. There aren't. There's like no men at all uh, at the feast. Right, like no humans allowed at the feast. There were two, right, who could have been present or who might have been present. But yeah, both Aragorn and Boromir uh, were um, uh, were were away. Um, <laughs> yeah, Boomful. Maybe the 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 message of the dream should have been a little bit more direct. Right, added something like uh, "push along now." Right, you got to get there for Frodo's feast as well as just for the council. Um, um, anyway, okay, cool. So anyway, thanks, Darren, for that observation. And you're certainly right. Tolkien, Tolkien, it's, it's not that he never uses surprise as an element in his stories. Like sometimes a surprise occurs, but, um, ve- I, Darren is absolutely right. Very rarely is there something surprising, which is not even pointed towards, right? Which is not even indicated anywhere, um, in uh, uh, in the text, foreshadowing and anticipation is very much more in Tolkien's line than pure surprise. Yeah, <laughs> Mike says that between Elrond and Arwen, there's almost one whole human. Well, I don't know, Arwen. You know, there's uh, significantly less than one hundred percent of a human being there. Yeah, um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, Let's go back to the text then. And what has become of Balin and Ori and Owen? asked Frodo. Remember, there was a list of the dwarves, you know, the seven of the ten surviving dwarves uh, who were still there in the Lonely Mountain. But of course, these three, as Frodo is pointing out, were conspicuously absent, right? So here's Frodo following up on that. A shadow passed over Glowen's face. We do not know, he answered. It is largely on account of Balin that I have come to ask the advice of those that dwell in Rivendell. But tonight let us speak of merrier things. Glowen began then to talk of the works of his people, telling Frodo about their great labors in Dale and under the mountain. We have done well, he said, but in metal work we cannot rival our fathers, many of whose secrets are lost. But we make good armor and keen swords, but we cannot again make mail or blade to match those that were made before the dragon came. Only waterways, only in mining and building have we surpassed the old days. 
You should see the waterways of Dale, Frodo, and the fountains and the pools. You should see the stone-paved roads of many colors, and the halls and cavernous streets under the earth, with arches carved like trees, and the terraces and towers upon the mountain sides. Then you would see that we have not been idle. I will come and see them if ever I can, said Frodo. How surprised Bilbo would have been to see all the changes in the desolation of Smaug. Glowen looked at Frodo and smiled. "'You were very fond of Bilbo, were you not?' he asked. "'Yes,' answered Frodo. "'I would rather see him than all the towers and palaces in the world.'" Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, J.J., no. The answer is not... What has become of Balin, Orion, Owen? The answer is not they were needlessly killed off by Rankin-Bass for some reason. Yes, it's true. It's, to me, one of... Of all of the puzzling things that happen in the Rankin-Bass film, uh, the second most puzzling thing to me uh, is why they just killed off a whole bunch of extra random dwarves. I mean, I guess it's not puzzling. It makes sense in that, like, it seems to fit in with their whole, like, battle is awful and, you know, their, their very strong anti-war message that they're delivering at the end of that film. But, um, but still, it was, an, a, to me, kind of an odd choice. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyhow, so... Um, uh, I, I say second strangest, of course. Is Needless to say, the strangest is still, like... Uh, why they didn't immediately fire the person who, uh, if it was Glenn Yarborough who actually wrote that song at the beginning, there's just no excuse. If it was not written by him, then uh, it would have been even easier to fire the per- whoever wrote it. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, so um, <laughs> sorry. I see what you did there, Karita. Karita has renamed herself Miraculous Trash, uh, which is a reference to our Notion Club papers discussion from last week. Took me a second there, Karita, uh, to put that together. Um, but anyway, yeah. So um, Karita says that uh, she kind of feels like maybe the fathers didn't do a great job if so many secrets were lost. Well, again, remember, they do have an excuse uh, in that uh, they... Um, you know they were. Um, uh, you know this is this was not an orderly um, uh, sequence, right? Um, this was um, uh, this was they. You know they were scattered uh, when the dragon attacked Erebor, and you know then were you know wandering right uh, nomadically until they finally ended up in the Blue Mountains. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then you know you've got the Battle of Azanulbazar and everything as well. So there's a lot of the fathers simply died, right? Uh, and many of them would have been killed by Smaug in the first place. So you have to think that there's a, a, a fairly significant amount of dwarvish, you know, lore that would have been passed on, you know, from father to son and master to apprentice that just didn't get passed on, right? Um, <laughs> Crownless does suggest that sorry we were eaten by a dragon is a pretty good excuse, uh, uh, and I agree. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So it, it's it does certainly suggest that the um, it does certainly suggest that the the lore of the dwarves, you know, this kind of uh, lore is passed on. Um, you know, is, 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 is passed on from, again, from father to son or from master to apprentice. It's not like there are necessarily libraries of dwarvish lore, right? But this certainly does, uh, as one of you 
was pointing out uh, before um, that this is a um, this is you know part of Tolkien's theme of de- another one of the examples of Tolkien's theme of decline as well. I'm not sure it's just a question of there being that kind of a generational gap uh, in the teaching. Um, of uh, of of the works of their fathers, right? Um, it's I, I that that probably factors into it. I don't doubt, but I think there's more to it than that. It's simply, it's hard, right? There's a decline. In fact, to me, Tony, yeah, great. I missed that comment before. Um, to me, the thing that's most striking about this passage is not actually the decline uh, in metalwork, but the fact that something is. Uh, has gotten better, right? Uh, I mean, because it's quite common in Tolkien's world for there to be this sense of gen- general decline. It, you know, in that way, uh, Middle Earth very much follows the kind of medieval model of this, right? I mean, that was a very widely accepted idea in the Middle Ages that you know um, the world is in continuous decline. We can't possibly hope to do what those who came before us accomplished um, just because we are lesser men than they were. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, uh, yeah, Tony, you're right. We hear that kind of thing very clearly among the Rohirrim. Um, we can also hear a similar kind of thing from Faramir, right? When he is talking about what has come of, you know, when he's doing his spontaneous lecture on Minas Tirith and its history, right? Um, um, so yeah, I mean that's a, that's kind of a, that's kind of a general thing, you know. Arden Cran is asking, did Tolkien believe that in real life? In some ways, I think. Right? I mean, think about all the things that Tolkien says about the modern world. Right? Um, technology was advancing, but of course, uh, you know, as we know, Tolkien didn't consider that objectively and holistically speaking an advance. Right? Um, so. Uh, you know, I, I do think that there are elements of of uh, where he felt like the the world was sort of in decline. Yeah, I don't know if he really believed it with the full kind of medieval fervor of it. Um, again, the 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 medievals tended to believe things like like we are not like we cannot be as intelligent as those who came before us. Like they are just they are wiser. The the, the individual people who lived hundreds of years ago you know, we're just, like, wiser, stronger, better than we are. Do I think that Tolkien believed that? No, I don't really think that Tolkien believed that. Um, but, um, yeah. <laughs> Evil Dr. Cannon <laughs> is asking uh, a question which, you know, Matt, I doubt that uh, Tolkien ever asked himself precisely this question, but he's, I wonder what mathematical form the decline took. Linear? Exponential? Quadratic? Um, an excellent question. I, I think linear, um, not exponential, uh, not exponential because that would suggest, well, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's exponential. Could be logarithmic for Thales. It's possible. Um, uh, I think it's, I think that it is, well, 
I suppose it could be exponential if it were sort of gradual, because there is a sense, right? I mean, thinking about um, uh, the exponential curve, right? Uh, and you think about the medieval traditions of thing of, of like the golden age, right? Um, and there is the sense of a, a sharp drop off um, and the modern era, you know, as they would have called the middle ages, they would have called the middle ages, the modern era, right? The modern era has gone on for quite a long time, right? So they would have looked back at the people who, you know, so somebody in like Chaucer's time, right? 14th century would have looked back to the people 500 years ago. And he wouldn't have been in awe of the people who lived 500 years ago, but he would have been in awe of the people who lived like a thousand or 1200 years ago. Um, so, uh, so maybe, yeah, if we, if we, uh, if we imagine it, yeah, as more of a hyperbolic curve, and then we'd have to, we, I think we could, we could pretty much plot, right? It wouldn't be hard, uh, to put the point of, uh, where the, 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 the drop off really happens, right? Which is the fall of Rome, um, I think is where I would date it. Um, but anyhow, again, <laughs> Back to the text. The point is, as interesting as this speculation is, uh, the um, uh, the 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 point here that again that strikes me is that Dale is not that way, right? Dale has um, uh, Dale has risen. Dale is better than it was in the old days. And they, although they have lost much of their lore, they, they cannot make again mail or blade to match those that were made before the dragon came, right? They just, they can't, they've lost the ancient skill of the fathers in metalwork. But in mining and, only in mining and building have we surpassed the old days, he says. So, Glowin downplays it, Right? only in mining and building. And that suggests to me that mining and building are lesser arts to the dwarves, right? That, you know, metalcraft, metalwork, that's the, that's the, you know, the alpha art among the dwarves. Mining, it would be understandable uh, to see why mining would be put sort of hierarchically below metalwork, right? Mining is important, right? If you're not good at mining, you're not going to have any metal to work, right? You need to get ore. Um, but, uh, but again, you can see how, although that's obviously an important and even a prerequisite art, it is not, you know, it is hierarchically below. That, that, that makes sense. But building is, is really interesting to me. Um, that architecture, that the construction of things, like presumably what he goes on to describe, right? The roads and the waterways and the fountains of Dale. Right, so not just individual structures, but the whole like aesthetic uh, layout of Dale. Right, the whole like civic design of Dale is uh, this art. Right, lesser than metalwork, Glowin implies. Right, not as highly regarded, not as valued by the dwarves, but still. Um, Nevertheless, one that has actually increased and one in which they have surpassed their fathers. And certainly Dale uh, appears to be, um, Dale appears to be the recipient, like the beneficiary, right, of this increased skill. The implication, though he doesn't say it in exactly these ways, right? 
again, he he downplays it. You know, um, if you could see all these things, right? Um, Frodo has seen the ruins of Dale, right? And he... Or no, sorry, Frodo hasn't. Bilbo saw the ruins of Dale, right? So Frodo will have heard about the ruins of Dale. Um, and so there would have been uh, the opportunity to kind of imagine what Dale of old might have been. And we we have only a few associations with it from the text, right? Dale with its many bells. Bells are the primary thing that are associated with Dale, right? Um, the old Dale, that is. Um, but the new Dale is better. It's an upgrade from the old Dale. Um, and, but again, notice where he ends up with that. Um, you should see the waterways of Dale, Frodo, and the fountains and the pools. You should see the stone-paved roads of many colors and the halls and cavernous streets under the earth with arches carved like trees and the terraces and towers upon the mountain sides. Then you would see that we have not been idle. That last sentence is where, again, this sort of humility comes in, right? Um, and if we stop short of that sentence, it sounds like, he, I mean, he's making a really interesting claim, apart from the fact that, you know, he claims that they're better at this than the, than the dwarf fathers were. Um, he is, he's, notice how he, 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 he starts with Dale. Right? You should see the waterways of Dale, Frodo, and the fountains and the pools, the stone-paved roads of many colors. Dale? Is this still Dale we're talking about? Probably. And the halls and cavernous streets under the earth? Oh, wait. That's not not Dale anymore? Dale? Does Dale have subterranean streets? I, you know, maybe? No, I don't think it does, right? And the halls, are there halls? Like, not mead halls, but like in cavernous streets under the earth? No, we did that. Um, and the terraces and towers upon the mountain sides? That's clearly Erebor, right? So he starts off talking about Dale without announcing it, right? You know, he doesn't be like, he doesn't say, you should see Dale. It's amazing, right? Oh, man, like Erebor, right? The Lonely Mountain, holy cow. Big upgrade. Big, big upgrade over the old days. Right? Remember Bilbo's uh, characterization of the Lonely Mountain as a darksome hole, right? Which Thorin kind of, um, with a laugh, takes exception to, right? Do not call my my uh, my palace a darksome hole, right? Um, you wait until it's been redecorated, he says. They've done more than redecorate, Right? They have thoroughly renovated Erebor. They have delved new tunnels. They have created... They have made new halls. They have done new carvings. They have made new terraces on the mountainside. Right? Um, which they didn't have before. We didn't... that We saw no evidence of that in The Hobbit. Right? Which suggests, of course, that the, um, the culture of the Lonely Mountain has changed. I would say... The implication seems to be there with the terraces in particular, right? Are they a little more outward facing than they used to be? A little bit less, let's hunker down in the mountain 
uh, and not pay any attention to the outside world. Again, we know back in the old days they were allied with Dale. We know that there were strong and, and very cordial relationships between the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain and the men of Dale. I'm not, I'm not trying to undermine that in any way, but... Um, but I don't know, the, the image of, of terraces on the side of the mountain implies to me a much more um, a kind of open uh, relationship between the two of them. Um, Iwendillion, it does kind of sound like Dale is the Venice of Middle-earth now, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the waterways. I'm not sure, like, waterways of Dale. Really? So Dale is now... There are canals? There's like a canal system in Dale? Okay, interesting. Um, I never imagined that. I never, I never, I kind of, I think I've always overlooked the word waterways and not really thought about it much. Because, uh, of course, you know, there's like Lake Town, and we know that Lake Town was built out on the lake and everything. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't imagine that it's right on the water like Venice, right? That it's, I mean, it's, it was, uh, um, it seemed to be set a little far back, uh compared to Lake Town, which is built out on the lake, right? Um, but um, but but waterway, there are waterways in Dale, right? Um, as well as fountains and pools. Lots of emphasis on the water in Dale. Uh, so, but again, it's the transition, right? It's the transition um, from talking about Dale to talking about Erebor that I find so interesting here. Um, he never says, although he admits uh, that they're better at building than the fathers were, his syntax implies that it's not a big deal. Only, right? Only in mining and building have we surpassed the old days. Small, minor things, right? Except we have totally pimped out Erebor now, right? It is, it, it looks better. It's It's been upgraded. Um, Think about Thorin and the dwarves in uh, Erebor when they first get there, right? Um, when they first get there, of course, we have them interacting with the Horde, right? So we see them very excited about the treasure. But think about what it means to them, right? Um, and yet... It kind of is a darksome hole. I mean, it's hard because it was wrecked by the dragon, but still, um, it still mostly feels like a cave, right? Or a set of caves. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyhow, I, um, I think that it's really interesting that they have, um, both, they have significantly, apparently significantly upgraded Erebor, new streets, new tunnels, new halls carved uh, down into Erebor. Um, and the, the and the terraces on the side, right? And yet Glowen is not emphasizing it. He's still being humble about it. Right? Um, remember, he ends with then you would see that we have not been idle. <laughs> okay. Right. So, oh, you have been doing something. That's the conclusion. When you get there, it'll blow you away so much that you will say, oh, so I guess you haven't been lazy, right? That's, that's, I mean, it's, it's an extremely downplaying, um, uh, uh, comment there at the end, right? So that mixture of 
pride in their works, the new works that they are doing, and yet humility, right? Not competing with the fathers, even speaking around the ways in which he doesn't he doesn't actually say. Yeah, let's face it, Erebor was, you know, kind of a dump before, right? But we have totally, like, we have increased the property value there, like, amazingly, right? Um, uh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really fun to see Frodo's response. I will come and see them if ever I can, said Frodo. How surprised Bilbo would have been to see all the changes in the desolation of Smaug. Now this, in part, of course, um, is a kind of a window into Frodo's own experience with this. He's never been there before, right? He's he, This is the furthest away from the Shire he's ever been. Um, but he's heard lots of stories, right? Bilbo, of course, is 100% his source of um, uh, of news about the Lonely Mountain, right? And news about Dale. So, um, it's, uh, so it's very understandable that he immediately thinks of, of Bilbo. And not only that, we can tell he's immediately thinking of Bilbo's stories, right? Because Bilbo's stories would have been primarily the descriptions of the desolation of Smaug. Everything that he knows about Dale, right? Would have been drawn, uh, from, uh, uh, drawn from Bilbo's, stories, right? The ones that we can read in his descriptions uh, of the Lonely Mountain and the desolation surrounding it. Um, yeah, so De La Mancha, I don't think he's actually defensive about being seen to be idle, right? I don't think he suspects that people are going to... Again, I think it's just, it's a very understated way of ask, as as Tony says, asking for approval, right? Or you know, sort of inviting um it's a very, very indirect boast, right? It's a very, very gentle boast. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So again, I, I don't see that as defensive at all. Um, just a, because uh, 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 I mean, it's hard on the, because he's, he's, he's walking that lonely and we've all been there, right? Um, I, I have to admit I'm there a lot when I'm talking about Signum, right? Uh, like, on the one hand, you want to talk about all the good things, right? Because you're really excited about it. Like, this is there's this thing that you're working on that you've been doing, and, and you love, and you're really excited about it. But at the same time, you you don't want to be, like, bragging, right? And being like, oh, yeah, like, this, you know, you should say I'm awesome because of these things that we've done. So he's he seems to be kind of walking uh, uh, that line there. He's kind of humble bragging a little bit there. Yeah, I think so. But again, I think it's not just a question of he doesn't want um he doesn't want Frodo to think he's being arrogant, right? That there's there's more to it than that. In addition, he's this is this is respect for the fathers, right? I think. You know, he's not going to diss the work of the father. He's not going to say, "Oh yeah, man, forget about it." Like the old Dale between you and me, that place was a was a dump, right? The old Dale was really, I mean, oh, you, the, the, their idea of how to contrive the streets, I mean, please, we have so improved on that, right? Um, he's not going to go there, right? Because he's not going to, he's not going to cast aspersions at the work of the fathers, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly, Kyle. You're right. I should totally pull that out, right? At the next uh, uh, State of the University, I'll be like, uh, yeah, Signum, at, at Signum, we haven't been idle. Um, that's it. <laughs> that's exactly That's exactly it. Um, now, Valamoyne and I agree. The focus of the fathers wasn't the same. And remember, he begins with the entire context of like what they were good at, what they what we can't compete with them at all. With that's the real art, right? That's the high art, the the art of metalwork, right? Weapons and armor. There's it's like night and day. We can't even we can't we can't do anything like they used to do. Those arts have been lost. Um, but one of the things that's, again, that's sort of interesting to me about the way that building is made secondary to metalcraft there is that, you know, in talking about the, the decline of things um, in uh, the, the medieval world, right, the medieval concept of decline, um, building was one of the primary things that seemed to spur that. Right. Um, it's easy to believe that those who came before you uh, were, you know, greater and more impressive than you when you're surrounded by Roman ruins. Right. That, you know, like aqueducts that still work and stuff, you know. Uh, so. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's or again, like you come upon like, you know, a Roman bath. Uh, with the plumbing still functional and everything, and you're like, okay, yeah, and you know, no, we couldn't do this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I agree that uh, it does also suggest a kind of a cultural difference as well, uh, but I'm not really sure that I would emphasize that especially. That is to say, yeah, on the one hand, you could say that the fact that the armor and weapons was best in the old days suggests that you know, their culture was more focused on war and the new culture less so. Um, but I'm not really sure about that. I'm not sure if that's safe to conclude, really. Um, because they... Uh, uh, the fact that they, the dwarves, I mean, the modern dwarves, still hold metalwork to be the greatest art. Like, they've obviously tried. Right? They've obviously tried to replicate uh, the weapons and armor uh, of the old days. That they found, remember, they found a bunch of that in the horde, right? And there would have been other survivals uh, that uh, you know some of the refugees from Erebor would have uh, would have retained. Um, but um, anyway, so so they still value it clearly. Um, and they're still doing metalwork, and they're still making weapons and armor. They've just they can't they've not succeeded in replicating it, right? The need seems to still be there. The emphasis seems to still be there. Um, it is possible, Matt, that there's a, a, a loss of access to materials like mithril, for instance, but, um, I mean, that's obviously at issue with the question of going back to Moria, right? Um, but I don't think there's any, um, especially when we're just thinking in general about the metalwork of the of the fathers, presumably those would have been the fathers at Erebor again, like some of the things that were um, uh, that were found there in the horde of Smaug. You know, it's uh, I mean, think of the, some of the descriptions of the armor that they find and the weapons uh, that they find and they take and use right straight from the horde. Um, 
Uh, this includes, of course, famously, Bilbo's mithril shirt, which might seem like a bad example, right? Or, or perhaps to suggest, again, that the problem is no more mithrils, so no more mithril coats. Um, yes. I mean, again, I, I, can, I, can, I can imagine, imagine that that's an issue, but I, gotta, but I don't think it's the only issue. I really, I really can't imagine that. Um, uh, yeah, Tony, what I would wonder is if they had some mithril, could they make a shirt like Bilbo's mithril shirt now? Maybe, maybe not, right? But more than that, it was clear even in The Hobbit, one could almost say, especially in The Hobbit, actually, it was clear that there was magic in the crafts of the dwarves there. Like, for instance, this was said explicitly um, concerning the musical instruments that they found, whose strings, the harps, whose strings still worked and everything, right, had not been destroyed by the amount of time they'd been, you know, sitting there in the dragon's halls. Um, uh, You know, they were definitely... um, Exactly, Matt, you were just remembering the golden harps there uh, uh, as well. Um, and the you know the the weapons that are still sharp and the 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 armor that hasn't rusted there's there's implications that these are what hobbits might call magic armor and magic weapons uh that are sitting there and that's i think the kind of thing that they are talking about so you know when we meet gimli and we will see his armor and you know his hammer and his axe uh, there's not, you know, it, they're not the same, right? They're not what hobbits might call magic armor. You know, Gimli's wearing a, a, a chainmail shirt, right? But he's not, um, but it's not like magic armor in the way that the, you know, the dwarves of Erebor used to be able to make. Again, that's not a word that Tolkien uses a whole lot, but that's the kind of thing that I hear when I'm when I when I hear that about you know we can't um, we cannot rival our fathers many of whose secrets are lost yeah like the runes that they used the 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 the, the incantations that they performed we don't know right uh, we don't know exactly what um, uh, what process went into that uh, the the infusion of these weapons with something right which hobbits might call magic. Um, so, anyway, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, uh, exactly, Matt. We get unnamed weapons, right, uh, uh, made by the new dwarves, uh, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> they can't even find the back doors to their halls. Exactly. See, like, much improvement needs to be made in building, right? There's, there's a lot to to, uh, to 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 like about the new directions they've been taking there. Um, anyway, okay, let's see. Um, how surprised Bilbo would have been to see all the changes in the desolation of Smaug, and we talked about again where we can see Frodo's mind is there. Glowin now looks at Frodo and smiles, right? Smiles doubtless in shared affection about Bilbo, right? Um, but also, of course, we know that he is uh, smiling, um, that he's smiling about the secret that he knows that Frodo does not know, right? And 
I've never been, you know, some people have asked, you know, why, why does nobody tell Frodo? Um, the fact that they decided it should be kept a surprise uh, doesn't seem to me very shocking or hard to understand. Um, I'm not 100% sure whose initiative the surprise would have been. Like, who was it who first said, "Don't nobody tell him that Bilbo's here until he sees him, right? Tony thinks it started, it comes from Bilbo. I could easily imagine that. I can imagine it coming from Gandalf, too. I couldn't imagine that it would be Sam. I could imagine it being Pippin, right? I can imagine Pippin and Mary doing that. I, 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 it does sound like a bit of a Gandalfian thing to do. I can agree with that. I can certainly agree with Bilbo, too. Um, yeah. Now we've got a we've got a, 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 a split voting here. P- some people think it's probably Bilbo. Others uh, uh, think it's uh, probably Gandalf. I, I could be convinced either way. Um, my, I think I think it was Bob. Yeah, Bob the Hobbit. Yeah, maybe, probably not. Um, it was Aristor. Oh yeah, that, that it, it, the Council of Elrond is not going to mention that Aristor is a wild practical joker behind the scenes. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that okay, to, to me it's it, it's it seems to sort of uh, fit in um, the uh, the thing that the number one thing that I, that makes me think it might be Gandalf, is I'm kind of imagining, so remember, it was Frodo's comment, in part to sort of disguise or rationalize his sense of, his unexplained sense of foreboding, uh, when the Black Rider first shows up in chapter three, and they decide to hide when they hear the horse hooves on the, on the, the road behind them, Right, and they ditch over into the bushes and and conceal themselves from the oncoming rider. And it was let's pay Gandalf out for being so late and give him a surprise. Right. So, you know, if Gandalf has heard that story, I can uh, I can imagine him being like, well, maybe I will uh, pay Frodo out for wanting to uh, surprise me and give him a surprise. Um, Tony argues with Bilbo, it's like the opposite of the disappearance joke. To me. The thing that would tell against it being Bilbo is that Bilbo doesn't seem to make much of the reveal, right? Um, If it is Bilbo, and it is his initiative, and it is his reveal, uh, you know, maybe it gets kind of ruined by the fact that Frodo comes to him when he's asleep, right? Uh, Maybe he had something a little more dramatic planned, uh, for the reveal, but uh, yeah, exactly, Tony. That he meant to, you know, do a big surprise, but uh, but then nodded off. Um, it is uh, uh, it is conceivable. Um, yeah, Matt, I agree with you. The possibility that Frodo has been sitting in what is literally Bilbo's chair um, at the feast, right? It's it, you know he had a suitable chair, and you know how many Hobbit. How many suitable to Hobbit chairs do they stock uh, at Rivendell? But they have had a Hobbit guest for a while, and nothing would surprise me less than the idea that one of the 
elves who delights in carpentry has uh, uh, has crafted a suitable chair for Bilbo so that he can eat comfortably at the table uh, with Elrond and company. Um, so Matt adds then, in addition, that um, uh, Bilbo um, might have absented himself on purpose to let his nephew have his moment in the sun uh, and wait until afterwards. Um, uh, with the joy, as Matt says, of knowing that he will get his own uh, hobbitry back uh, with the surprise after the feast, right? Um, uh, I like that narrative. I mean, that definitely works for me. I guess then it would be merely a... Um, uh, Merely a not a coincidence, but a, a, a sort of a final irony that the very end of Bilbo's plan kind of falls through because he falls asleep uh, in the uh, in, in in the Hall of Fire. Um, yeah, uh, Crownless does point out that Gandalf seems to uh, make sure to be there to see Bilbo uh, and Frodo. Right? Um, certainly, no question that uh, everybody knows that this is the moment when the surprise is going to be sprung, right? Because they have all conspired not to mention it. Um, and that conspiracy, uh, an even more benevolent conspiracy, I think, uh, than the first conspiracy we saw, um, again, that seems to me entirely to fit. Um, uh, and and to me, it doesn't even require, it doesn't even really require much explanation. Um so, like I said, I think I, c- I could make an argue for, argument for Gandalf and against Bilbo, but in the end, I actually really like that Bilbo narrative, Matt. Uh, you have won me over by the, uh, the delightfulness of that particular story. Uh, so I think, uh, I, 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 I think I'll, I'll, I'll throw in with the Bilbo folks um, for, uh, uh, for, that, for that reason. Um, and yes, Tony, the conspiracy wasn't unmasked ever, really. They never explicitly talk about it, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay, let's see. So, we're talking about Glowin's smile. You were very fond of Bilbo, were you not? The past tense is the part that I find most puzzling or odd about this question from Glowen? Why does he say were? It could be, of course, that he is just referring to the time that they lived together, saying, you know, back in the days when you lived together, you loved him very much, right? But he's almost talking about, it almost sounds like he's talking about Bilbo as if he were dead, right? Um... Not that it doesn't sound especially like he is, um, you know, uh, setting Frodo up for, you know, a letdown, right? Or setting, you know, like a, you were fond of, of him, right? Like to, as if to work around to saying like, but, and you didn't know he was dead, right? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, JJ, that's the other, that's the other potential reading, right? Uh, that, uh. You know, I was very fond of him, but then he left me all his problems with the Sackville Bagginses, so I'm kind of cooled towards him now. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the old days, I used to like him well enough. Now, you know, I'm kind of over him, frankly. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but but again, I think, yeah, Tony, that's an interesting way to think about it, that 
when Glowen is speaking to Frodo of Bilbo, he is speaking of someone not who has necessarily, um, you know, died, right? But who is in the past tense in the sense of, like, both of us have fond memories of Bilbo from the past, right? He is, uh, he is, uh, a character out of, out of, out of, out of our pasts, both of our pasts, right? Not at the same time, not at the same moment. You know, we don't share those past moments, um, but, um, but our memories of Bilbo, you know, when we think of Bilbo, it's both of us are remembering back to old days, right? Uh, fond memories. We share fond memories. Not the same fond memories, but we share the fact that both of us have fond memories um, of uh, of Bilbo. And that does seem to be how he kind of contextualizes it, right? How he... Um, uh, how he frames the entire question, right? Um, you were very fond of Bilbo, were you not? Um, you guys were close. You used to be close, right? And, and truly, it's been a long time. 17 years. That's quite some time, and there's very little evidence of much contact. I think we talked... We talked about this before a little bit. I can't remember whether we talked about it before or whether I talked about it in a totally different class and context, but um, I, um, I definitely... Uh, I, there might be some evidence that Bilbo has written to Frodo in the past, but um, I think certainly not for a while, in any case. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the world has moved on since then, Fourth Dauntless, exactly. Um, yeah, Irindus says, I can imagine Glowen saying that uh, to Balin. Right, you were very fond of Bilbo, weren't you? Right, as they're looking back on those old times. Yeah, that, that I think that that's actually a really good way of thinking about the kind of it seems to capture um, the tone of the past tense there. I think very well. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. We, we were debating about Bilbo's last letter. Right, Frodo's mention of his last letter. Um, uh, and whether that was the letter that was left at Bag End when Bilbo left, or whether uh, Frodo received a letter from Bilbo at some time after that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. For Thoughtless, I think I always also assumed that Bilbo's last letter was the letter that he left, um, like in the packet that he, you know, which also contained the ring, but also contained Bilbo's will and many other important things, including his last letter. Um, but, uh, yeah, that doesn't seem to me, um, very shocking. It's true. We have some concrete evidence of how poor the postal delivery is, right? Once you get past, uh, uh, past the, the brandy wine. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, it's uh, the 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 post from Bree is certainly not sure as the quick post. Absolutely. Um, Frodo answers definitively in the present tense. However, right, I would rather see him than all the towers and palaces in the world. That I think, of course, is not designed to be a slight. 
you know, you've just been going on about towers and palaces and the amazing things that you have built. Um, but you know, you can keep those. I'd rather talk. I'd, I'd rather talk to Bilbo. I mean, obviously, he's not trying to uh, uh, downplay that, right? Downplay their accomplishments. I think that the the emphasis here is he's playing back on Glowin's own tone, right? Glowin has has waxed enthusiastic about the mighty works that they have done in Dale and Erebor. Um, and how excited he is about them, and and Frodo has just commented on how interested he would be to see them. Um, But he goes on to add, yeah, basically, like, do... uh, Was I fond of Bilbo? Let me give you some context, right? You know how fond you are of Erebor and Dale? You know how excited you are about the works of your... uh, of, of, of your hands there? Um... I uh, would rather see him than all of the towers and palaces in the world. Combine those with all of the other great works made by other folks in various places, and I would rather uh, I would rather uh, see Bilbo than all of those put together. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Mike, I agree. Tense wise, it does make sense. Um, yes, I was very fond of him, and I would rather. Uh, see him than all the towers and palaces in the world. Um, yes, yes. Um, which is clearly connected, right? Um, uh, but, uh, but, but yes, is not necessary. I, I, I don't hear that as like a correction. You know, like you were very fond of Bilbo. Yes, I am still very fond of Bilbo. Again, I don't see a disagreement there. I see him, uh, uh, you know, sort of moving on or sort of continuing forward. Um, and yes, Tony, you're absolutely right. He is surrounded by memories of Bilbo's stories. Um, Rivendell, Glowin, Gandalf, uh, all the things, right? Um, and especially, of course, in this context, as he's just been hearing about the former desolation of Smaug, which is now, you know, the glorious accomplishments of the non-idle dwarves of the Lonely Mountain. Um, uh, but he's still it's Bilbo that he still longs for. Um, okay. Let's do another slide. At length the feast came to an end. Elrond and Arwen rose and went down the hall, and the company followed them in due order. The doors were thrown open, and they went across a wide passage and through other doors and came into a further hall. In it were no tables, but a bright fire was burning in a great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side. Frodo found himself walking with Gandalf. This is the Hall of Fire, said the wizard. Here you will hear many songs and tales, if you can keep awake. But except on high days, it usually stands empty and quiet, and people come here who wish for peace and thought. There is always a fire here, all the year round, but there is little other light. As Elrond entered and went towards the seat prepared for him, elvish minstrels began to make sweet music. Slowly the hall filled, and Frodo looked with delight upon the many fair faces that were gathered together, and the the golden firelight played upon them and shimmered in their hair. Suddenly he noticed, not far from the further end of the fire, a small dark figure, seated on a stool, with his back propped against a pillar. Beside him on the ground was a drinking cup and some bread. Frodo wondered whether he was ill, if people were ever ill in Rivendell, 
and had been unable to come to the feast. His head seemed sunk in, his, sunk in sleep on his breast, and a fold of his dark cloak was drawn over his face. Um, yeah, Tony says it's interesting that Gandalf emphasizes falling asleep in the hall as something likely to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's almost... I, I, I think Gandalf is trolling Frodo a little bit here, right? I think that this is Gandalf hinting at um, Bilbo, right? I think so. He's te- he's instructing him to look around the room, and looking around the room, there's a dude who has fallen asleep, whom he, you know Frodo gently wants to draw Bilbo or Frodo's attention to, right? Um, I wonder if that influences why he adds, if you can keep awake, when he is describing what happens here. Um, I do think there may well be a serious element in it as well, like that that it could well be one of the effects of um, uh, that that Elven song has on mortals, right? I mean, that's... Um, there's a long history, certainly, of Elvish singing causing enchantment among humans, right? Among mortals. Um, uh, so that they, I mean, it's not like it would be unprecedented if a mortal sitting in the Hall of Fire listening to the Elvish singing fell asleep and woke up like a hundred years later, right? To find that all of his family and friends were dead of old age, right? I mean, like, it's known. That's that's happened before, right? Um so, there certainly is, I think, um, I, I think that that kind of uh, tradition is one of the things that um, that sort of lies behind things here. JJ's reminding us that Frodo is also recovering from a serious injury, true enough, right? So perhaps uh, this is also a, um, a gentle reminder of Frodo's need for further rest, possibly. Um, <laughs> I like, uh, I like that, uh, uh, who is it? Uh, Green Great Dragon was uh, suggesting that Gandalf could be making a, a, a sort of a preemptive dig at Bilbo's poetry. Uh, that's conceivable. I, I doubt that's the first thing that he's talking about, but I can't absolutely rule that out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Karina, that's interesting. Uh, Frodo's comment about if people are ever ill in Rivendell, uh, which is a slightly odd statement for somebody who is just recovering from an illness, right? Um, <clears throat> but actually, I think in that way, it's just kind of a more poignant testimony, right? Frodo was wounded and, you know, cursed, but he was not exactly ill in the sense of just, like, having a tummy ache or whatever, right? You know, uh, having a, uh, you know, he's not just, uh, doesn't just have some kind of digestive indisposition or something, um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good, um, okay, let's see, I'll be a little more systematic here, uh, first of all, notice that the company is following them in due order, um, so there is, so Elrond and Arwen rise, and, like nobody leaves the hall until Elrond and Arwen rise and leave, and then everyone else leaves. But they don't just leave; they rise and follow in 
due order, and we don't know exactly what that order was. I'm guessing Glorfindel is right behind Elrond and Arwen. Uh, he was, after all, seated at Elrond's right hand. One of the things that this suggests is um, a a significant sense of order, right? A sense of, of formality among the elves. And this is something that... Um, uh, uh, this is something that oh, I think is one of the things that a lot of people d- wouldn't tend to associate, I think, with Tolkien's elves. At least I never hear anybody talking about this. Uh, their sense of of order in this sense. I. It sounds, Tony, as if it were order of precedence by rank. Rank defined how? I'm not really sure. Um, uh, but in some way or other, um, and yeah, exactly, Tony. It is clearly not uh, a um, an egalitarian society. Remember Frodo's first question when he met Gildor and Glorian, right? And knew he was talking to one of the Noldor. What does he say? What is your, you know, who are you and who is your lord? He says right off the top, uh, knowing enough of Elvish culture to know that that's a relevant and important question to be asking, right? Um, so. Yeah, no, it's not a uh, it's not an egalitarian society, um, and but I'm not really sure exactly how. Um, evil Doctor Cannon asks, uh, "How are people assigned? Uh, do I think all of the people are assigned a status rank, and how do you get promoted?" Um, uh, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how promotions happen. I don't know. Uh, I assume, yes, that there is, like... The company follows them in due order. This does not mean Elrond and Arwen left and then everybody else just kind of get up and, and, and move towards the door without pushing and shoving, right? You know, that's how... Uh, it might go in like a modern assembly, right? Uh, and if you accomplish that, then you, you know, if, uh, if, if you, if you manage to get everybody from one room to another, you know, at the family reunion, uh, without any pushing and shoving or fist fights breaking out, you, it's a victory. There's clearly more do order. I, I, I really do take that as meaning this is, this is like a procession. Uh, exactly. It is like a Royal court, Gilgon theory. And again, that's exactly what I think a lot of people, uh, don't seem to uh, don't normally associate with Rivendell, um, but this is not the first time in this scene, right? That we have seen instances of that from the very beginning of Elrond sitting at the head of the table with Glorfindel on his right and 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 Gandalf on his left. We have seen that there is definitely a. Um, a, a sort of a rank thing going on with Arwen in her special seat, covered seat, right halfway down the table. Um, again, this is this is uh, very formalized, really. Um, so, uh, but again, what exactly is the rank based on, right? I'm not sure. Um, I certainly wouldn't think it would necessarily be rank in a way which would be exactly the same. I guess some people, like Irindis is saying, it sounds it sounds pretty Victorian. Um, absolutely, the order of precedence would have been made. I mean, you think about uh, people who are announced at a royal audience, 
right? That random that order is not chosen randomly, right? Or when people are introduced at a ball, or when people are introduced, uh, you know, as they come into a, a you know for a, for a, for a dinner party, right? Or where they're seated at the table. Yeah, 19th century England, none of that happens by... This is not just like, again, when you're filling out the seat assignments, you know, for your wedding reception and wanting to say, oh, let's make sure, you know, Uncle Jim isn't at the same table as Cousin Bertie, right? It's, it's, it's not like that at all. However, although this seems to be formalized to the same extent that we can see in that kind of 19th century British tradition, I am not at all confident that it is primarily the, um, uh, I'm not at all sure that it is primarily, uh, the, the, um, social rank in the same sense, certainly not wealth, which of course was a really big part of it, uh, in 19th century, uh, 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 rankings. Um, but again, absolutely, Elvish society has never been egalitarian, right? Um, and as, um, Great Green Great Dragon was saying, um, neither are the Valar and the Maiar, right? There are those who are greatest among them, and, and they like the Maiar have a due order, as Green Great Dragon was saying, absolutely, right? Um, not just because, you know, Manway holds a kind of titular authority, like, you know, he's the boss, right? So, of course, he comes first. Yeah, but, like, who comes first? Olmo or, to- or, or Tolkis, right? That's a no-brainer. Olmo comes first, right? He is greater, than Tulkas. Um, no question, right? Neither of them are going to argue about it. It's clearly true. And that seems to be, there seems to be something of the same kind going on among the elves. I would be interested to figure out sort of what um, uh, premise was being used, right? And Valamoinen, I agree with you. I think that a lot of people tend to think of, of Rivendell as more kind of communal, right? Um, I mean, they don't have a king. Elrond isn't king, right? You know, I mean, so it seems like a much more kind of loose structure, you know, with Elrond kind of hosting this really long-term house party at Rivendell, but, you know, uh, come and go as you please, right? It's very kind of informal, except it's not informal at all. At least on occasions like this, it is not informal at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> evil Dr. Cannon says, clearly it's not by the number of Balrogs defeated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and Mike, I agree with you. Um, the only folks who ever seem to be put out with their assigned places in the order are bad guys, right? It's folks like Myglin from the Silmarillion who wants a promotion, right? Who wants to increase his status and move up, right? And who uh, lusts after his own first cousin in part because he sees her as the ticket to increasing his status and increasing his power, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Um... That uh, that certainly that I, I would go so far as to say in Tolkien's world that seems to be almost diagnostic, right? Like if you have a problem with where you are in the pecking order, right? Uh, if 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 you think you're being uh, you should be sitting higher up at the table than you are, 
um, th- you might have a problem. You might be on the road uh, to the outer darkness and the, the void beyond the, the doors of night because uh, that's, that's kind of where that road leads, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Tony suggested, uh, and a couple of people were suggesting that, like, this exactly the, the way that the status works is something which would very likely have developed over many, many years, right? Many, many, many years, right? We have, we're talking about immortals here. So they've had thousands of years to, uh, get, uh, get a sense of things here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Green Great Dragon, I agree. I do think this is one of those things which feels weirder to Americans than it does to others. I just, that seems to me true. Um, as Americans, we have a real hard time with this, you know, non-egalitarian concept, right? Uh, and, you know, there are very few instances in our society where that is not uncomfortable, where, like, standing on rank precedence doesn't kind of... I mean, it happens, right? But um, but it's uncomfortable, right? Um, and it almost never is... Uh, um, it almost never is something you don't have to apologize for. Um, so, yeah, it's just weird. But again, that weirdness, that sense of weirdness is something that I do think to be genuinely alien to Tolkien's work. I don't see the slightest bit of um, hesitation, uh, of association with that kind of, like, you know, if you think you're better than me, you must have a pride problem, right? That's not necessarily true in Tolkien's world. But the other, the opposite, the sort of the converse of that might be true, right? If you have a problem with the fact that everybody says that I'm above you, you might have the problem, right? You might be Maeglin, you might be Sauron, you might be um, Arpharazon, right? Um, as someone mentioned earlier on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, JJ says... Uh, uh, working alongside military folk on an Air Force base makes it a little less weird. It's true. There are certainly places, uh, and Matt and JJ just mentioned two of them, where you do still certainly see it, even in American society. One in the military, uh, and two uh, in traditional uh, 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 faculty, like the, the faculty process in due order uh, at the uh, like at uh, uh, college ceremonies and things like that, certainly. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because, of course, uh, I am like, uh, at the same time that I'm saying, you know, very earnestly, like, you know, we need to be comfortable with this. This isn't something that's really weird in Tolkien's world. I'm very aware of the fact that I have gone pretty far out of my way to completely obliterate any such systems uh, in my own university here. But um, um, anyway. Anyway, okay. Um, moving on here. Uh, no tables, but a bright fire was burning in a great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side. 
one note that I want to make here, and, and you know, I certainly, um, I don't want to imply, I'm going to be referring again to the History of Middle-Earth uh, books and Tolkien's early manuscript history. Um, and I don't mean, whenever I refer back to these, you know, I don't mean to imply that, uh, you know, you, you, you can only understand the Lord of the Rings if you know this, uh, this earlier stuff. But there are some things which do look really different when you do know some of these other things that Tolkien has had in his mind and has worked out uh, in some of his other, um, uh, in, in some of his other stories too. And uh, that is in the very beginning of his very first uh, Middle-earth stuff at the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales uh, when Ariel, the human wanderer, uh, gets to the cottage of Lost Play uh, uh, and is invited in. Um, he, the, 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 the hall of, of storytelling um, where they gather, the hall of tales, it's very much like the hall of fire. Um, and I can't, I, I can't not imagine that this, the, 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 the gathering, the hearth, right, um, the dominance of the hearth. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the whole sort of point of the room. This just big gathering room where people come in and sit around near the fire and listen to stories, right? And the reason that I, um, I don't know. It's possible, of course, that my memory of that hall. Um, from the book, from the book of Lost Tales, might possibly be misleading me because, of course, that was the hall of the children. Like that, you know, it, it was children who come clamoring into that room to sit around the, fi- you know, by the fire and listen to stories. Right. So the um, the children element, the uh, the 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 child storytelling element um, of that might be totally inappropriate for the Hall of Fire at Rivendell. But I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure that there is not a kind of childlike um, quality of the gathering uh, in the Hall of Fire. I mean, for one thing, the lack of chairs. Right? The lack of chairs suggests... Well, no, it doesn't suggest. It basically... One of two things has to be true, right? Either everybody stands at all times... Right, and which means it's kind of very stiff and formal. Um, so everyone is standing around like at a reception or something like that the whole time, or everybody sits on the floor. Um, there's no, um, uh, <laughs> there's 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 no other alternative. There are no chairs in the room, right? Um, so I, I. I tend to think that the latter is the case. Some people stand and some people sit, but I think it's it's fairly clear um, that some of the people, at least some of the you know these elves who have proceeded into the have processed into the hall in due order, right, um, have are going to be like sitting on the floor listening to stories. And so that does imply to me that some element of that, that childlike element, right, we're all going to sit around on the floor and listen to stories, is true here in the hall. That it's, that for all the formality that we've been noticing, the, the formality doesn't necessarily mean stiffness, right? Um, it doesn't mean 
standing on your dignity and, you know, not deigning to sit upon the floor, right? Um, uh, definitely not. Now, okay, Nahor, maybe you're right. It does say there are no tables. It doesn't necessarily say no chairs. Maybe there are random chairs around. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Mike was just noticing the same thing. Um, <laughs> beanbags. Well, there's at least a stool, right? We know that Bilbo is sitting on a stool. Um, that by itself is suggestive. Now, they could just be Bilbo could bring his own stool uh, into the Hall of Fire, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily suggest that there are lots of other low stools, right? And there is a seat for Elrond, right? Elrond doesn't sit on the floor. Um, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, well, Tony, I agree. That's one safe conclusion to draw from the lack of tables is that it's not like a mead hall, right? That it's not... Um, uh, there doesn't seem to be very much... There would be more places to put drinks, right? Uh, if this were a drinking place. Um, so what do you think? If there are chairs, we're told nothing about them. There were in it were no tables, but a bright fire was burning in a great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side. So I'm just uh, that I'm, I'm still thinking about the chair question. It doesn't say there are no chairs. You're right. I was extrapolating from the no tables to saying there are no chairs, and we know there have to be at least a couple chairs. Um, but. The spiritual chairs. Uh, uh, no, no, they're not spiritual chairs. But again, think about think about the options, right? Are there like chairs randomly around the room? Are there benches? Are there rows of chairs? Are there, you know, I. I uh, The positive description that there is, but, but I mean, not just like, so the negative thing, the absence of tables is observed. Um, and then the only thing that is positively described is a bright fire burning in a great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side, right? Either side of the fire, presumably. Um, it's hard for me to imagine this room... Uh, with chairs against the walls like at a middle school dance is exactly what I was imagining, evil Dr. Cannon. Also, like at a at a an Edwardian ball, actually. Um, yeah, exactly. That's just kind of what I was picturing, actually. Um, and here's the reason. Here's the reason. The hearth, right? This is called the Hall of Fire, and the hearth is described. And there is a singular bright fire burning in a singular great hearth between the carven pillars upon either side. Again, I think that means either side of the hearth, not that there are... Does it mean there's a great hearth on either side of the room? Are there two hearths? Now I'm doubting myself. I mean, it does say a fire and a hearth. 
The hearth is in the center of the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. How many hearths do you think there are? Mm, one hearth? <laughs> Maybe we need to do a recreation of the Hall of Fire. Um, uh, yeah. I'm thinking... I, 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 my vote is for a single hearth. Um, but I don't know, again, maybe I'm just being biased from memories of Book of Lost Tales. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Lots of people are making witty comments, uh, <laughs> which I can't read all of. Um, yeah, Gandalf does say a fire. There is always a fire, and it's not—it's not the Hall of Fires, uh, says Irindis. I agree. Let's go with the plain interpretation of that, unless we're compelled otherwise. So there is a single hearth and a single fire. Um, I have to think that the room is mostly open. I can't imagine that you have to, like, wend your way among rows of chairs or even necessarily of benches. Um, uh, I think there is probably a central hearth in the middle of the room uh, and that there are pillars on either end. So it's a, it's a hearth which is, long, you know, not a square hearth, but a rectangular fire in the middle of the room. And it is, uh, and there's, and there's, you know, pillars on either side of it, Right. And there's a open space around it, um, and yes, it it, it is going to have a come and go as you please setup. So there's not going to be rows. Like you're not going to have to, you know, be like excusing yourself as you work your way out in order to leave. Right? It's going to be more loose than that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's I think what I'm what I'm. Uh, That's what I'm picturing here. That's what seems to that's what seems to, to sort of fit. And so I would imagine that more of the chairs would be back against the wall. Um, there might be stools. There might be cushions. I do imagine some people would be sitting on the floor. Um, there does not seem to be any kind of centralized focus of the seating, right? Um, but again, I think there's got to be a lot of open space. This place can't be full of chairs. Right, um, which then, which still brings me back. I, I, I think, given the number of people, the multiple tables worth of people who have all processed out uh, and come into the Hall of Fire here, um, the idea that they gather here, uh, um, on high days, right? Um, yeah, suggests to me that it. Uh, it has a fairly high capacity, right? Uh, the fire marshal is not going to get alarmed when everybody comes in from the from the feast. Um, yes, Iwan Dilly and I agree. It does imply that there are concurrent activities going on. Um, so when Bilbo's reciting his poem, that doesn't necessarily mean that like the whole room is listening to Bilbo, right? There will be like a bunch of people off on one side of the room. Um, 
you know, presumably in a circle or something, right, listening to Bilbo's poem. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, people were asking before, except on high days it usually stands empty and quiet, and people come here who wish for peace and thought. Um, uh, yeah, so, the, the, so people were asking, is this a high day then? Uh, yeah, there was just a feast, right? So high day is a fairly broad term, right? I don't think that necessarily means like holiday on the calendar. Necess- I mean, it would include holidays on the calendar, which impl- you see the implication of that, by the way, right? Apparently, in Rivendell, they managed to pull off having festivals and feasts on the regular without Balrogs coming to break up the party. I mean, so far, I think they're pretty much oh for however many festivals they've had on, you know, having an orc horde or a Balrog army descend upon them while they're having festivals, right? So, whatever, they figured out how to do it, apparently, here in Rivendell, uh, to keep, you know, Balrogs, gigantic spiders, uh, and uh, orc hordes uh, from interrupting the high days. So that's good. Um... Now, I agree, or or random wandering dwarfs, exactly, uh, Thalamoinen, absolutely. Um, for Thoughtless, you're right that uh, the usually here does give us an out, right? Except on high days, it usually stands empty and quiet, so this doesn't have to be, you know, considered officially a high day. Um, uh, so this is an unusual day, it's not a high day, but the hall is not is neither empty nor quiet right um yeah yeah so um yeah yeah um i think that's i think that that's that's very possible um it also is a kind of an indirect compliment to frodo right we are going to gather here in the hall of fire as we generally only do on high days right um so you know even if you don't go as far as saying you know it's pretty much you know, a high day celebrating Frodo, Frodo's celebration, right, is, is being put essentially sort of socially on a par, uh, with, uh, with the high days. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yet, no, Elrond does not seem to make it a policy of waiting for an adventure or a marvel to occur before letting things happen on a high day. No, no, fortunately. That's really a dubious, uh, practice, I have to say. Um, yeah, yeah. I do think it possible, um, Amy, that high days could be understood just in terms of, like, a, a day of celebration, right? Not only holidays, again, in that sort of calendar sense, right? Or maybe not calendar so much as uh, astronomical, as you guys were saying. Um, but, but you know, I, 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 I think that could kind of go either way. Um yeah. So, you know, holiday, of course, Tony is a, a, a tricky word to use, right? Um, as, of course, holiday comes from holy day. I mean, it's a Christian word. Um, uh, so, you know, do elves have holidays in that literal sense? Um, not necessarily. Um, uh, but, um, yeah. It's 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 those two things would clearly mean different things, right? Um, 
And of course, don't forget that it's all like, you know, the word holiday or high day as applied to it is just a translation, right? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the elves don't have bank holidays, uh, Green Grey Dragon. Of that, I think we can feel fairly confident. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we know for a fact, Fourth Dauntless, yes, that there are times of festival based around the cycle of the seasons. We know that from the fact that, like, we are told that the festival that was happening in Valinor, right, when Morgoth and Ungoliant came in and and uh, destroyed the trees, was a seasonal festival, right? And furthermore, we see a seasonal festival, what appears to be a seasonal festival, happening with the Wood Elves when the dwarves are coming in and interrupting their, uh, their revels um, in The Hobbit, right? So, uh, there's and we there's uh, we know that the Gondolin one is uh, like at the fall of Gondolin the one that you know I think pretty much every festival that we know for a fact happens i.e. all of the festivals that get interrupted by horrible tragedy um, are uh, are seasonal so yeah absolutely we've got all kinds of data I think to support that um, yeah yeah. Um, Yep, definitely. Definitely. Um, Evil Dr. Cannon, I agree that Durin's day is really interesting as a high day, right? Um, In that Durin's day is marked not by a seasonal thing having nothing to do with crops or anything like that, but as a a sort of an astronomical peculiarity, right? uh, even one which, remember, Thorin said it passes our skill in these days to even predict when a Durin's Day is going to come. Like, in a given year, will it be Durin's Day this year? Um, so it's a, it's a, it's an obscure, it's like predicting an eclipse, right? So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, at least, at least that, that's how Thorin talks about it. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a little bit like calculating Easter. Not quite, but actually Durin's Day is a little bit like uh, the Easter calculation. Um, anyway. Okay. So, look at what happens when we come in. Elrond entered, and there's a seat prepared for him. Elvish minstrels make sweet music. Elrond's not sitting on the floor. Elvish minstrels begin to make sweet music. More than one minstrel probably playing together, not competing minstrels. The hall slowly fills, of course, because Elrond processes right to his chair and everybody else files in. Um, uh, That word... um, That word filled is interesting, right? Um, They have come in in order, in due order, but I don't get the sense that they're still in due order. Right? Like, the room is just kind of filling up. It's not... People aren't taking their places when they arrive. And even the description of the fair faces that were gathered together. Right? I don't think that just means gathered together in the sense of all in the same room. Right? You know, like, we are gathered together today, dearly beloved. Um, I think that this is... They were gathered together in the, you know, look delight upon the many fair faces that are gathered together like clumps of people talking and laughing and singing together, right? Um, so that's 
I think what gathered together means there is he's looking at like the different sort of clumps and circles of faces um, who are which are all animated right which are all interacting with each other um, yeah yeah um, <laughs> no I don't think it's exactly an elvish mosh pit uh, Frumius Bujum uh, uh, but you know uh, I, not due order necessarily but perhaps perhaps not quite that undue uh, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're somewhere in the middle between orderly procession and mosh pit there's admittedly a fairly broad stretch of possibilities there right um, yeah absolutely um, yeah they arrive in order and then they go hang out with their friends exactly exactly um, the golden firelight played upon them and shimmered in their hair yeah. It's funny, mentioning the golden firelight, doesn't that kind of give you the impression that most of them are blonde, which is probably not true? Um, it's interesting. I don't think that Tolkien was meaning to imply that, but the golden, the word golden uh, juxtaposed with shimmering in their hair uh, does kind of invite that, right? But I don't think that that's what's meant. That's what's what's intended there. Um, yeah, Catriona uh, wonders, you know, again, coming back to order, right? Order matters for the procession, but once in the hall, everyone, with a few exceptions, is more or less equal. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe? I don't know. I, I don't think it's about equality. I, I don't think equality is an issue re- exactly at any time. Um, not really about equality, but... Um, uh, but what is it? You know, what is it about? Um, well, it's about celebration. It's about camaraderie. It's about, uh, you know, talk and singing. Um, I suspect that they are... Um, it's it's less formal, in a sense, yeah. And again, they're not all standing in, like, rank order or something like that. Um, but they do seem to have... Uh, I would assume primarily broken up into groups who are interested in kind of doing the same things, you know, those who want to recite poems, those who want to listen to music, um, all sorts of different things. Those who are, I don't know what, there's some playing cards in the corner. I don't know. Um, uh, they do that at, uh, at, uh, um, you know, Jane Austen's balls, so uh, maybe they do that here too. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there could be a dartboard in the corner. Doesn't say there isn't, right? Uh, it's entirely possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, suddenly he noticed, uh, back to our figure, not far from the further end of the fire, a small dark figure seated on a stool with his back propped against a pillar. Okay. You know what I'm most interested in in this sentence? The pillar! <laughs> okay, so we were told earlier on that there are carven pillars upon either side of the hearth. Does this mean that one of those two pillars is the one that Bilbo is... Or does this suggest that there are also other pillars around the room? It's just there were two particularly, like, ornately carven pillars upon either side of the hearth. And then there are smaller pillars around 
the room elsewhere, right? Um, yeah, I don't really know. It does kind of look like Bilbo cosplaying as Strider, I agree. Um, the parallel, I, I, I was definitely sort of struck by the parallelism here. I mean, there's a kind of amusing, um, oops, there's a kind of amusing um, contrast, of course. Uh, while Strider was off in the corner being extremely vigilant, right? Bilbo is sort of off on the side <laughs> being extremely unvigilant, right? And having fallen asleep. Um, uh, so that seems to me that the, the, the parallel is kind of funny in that regard. I think there's definitely some comedy there. Um, I think that there are multiple pillars, yeah, and I think that Bilbo is leaning against one of the lesser uh, pillars there uh, around the room. Um, he's not far from the further end of the fire, but I think he would be described as being, like, at the further end of the fire if he's uh, uh, if he were leaning against the pillar that was mentioned uh, there in that first paragraph. Um Yes, yes. Um, beside him on the ground was a drinking cup and some bread. You know, because of the reference to the drinking cup and the bread being on the ground, I pictured Bilbo as sitting on the ground here for ever so long. Uh, many, many years I was reading and picturing this scene in my head uh, and totally missing the reference to the stool, right? Um, this... Uh, has to be a fairly low sitting stool, I would have to think. It's not like a bar stool that he's sitting on. Um, and, uh, I mean, you wouldn't want to balance on top of a tall stool with your back against a pillar falling asleep, right? Um, but a short stool, which just makes his legs more comfortable, makes uh, a certain degree of sense here. Um, yeah. Um, he could be on the far side of the pillar, or at least, Matt, not just like facing squarely uh, to uh, uh, to to them as they come in, right? Um, it doesn't say exactly uh, how he's oriented compared to Frodo, right? Um, he's not far from the further end of the fire, seated on a stool with his back propped against a pillar. He's got a drinking cup and some bread. Um... Frodo's wondering if he was if he was ill, right? Um, yeah, Fortan is exactly like a footstool is just what I'm thinking here. Um, he's, he's, he's eating plain hobbit fare. Um, agreed. Frodo's wondering about whether he's ill or not is clearly related, right? Clearly related to uh, merely just his absence, right? Like, why wasn't this dude at the feast? Um, you know, is, is he on, uh, you know, is he, is he, is he on a special diet, right? Is, I mean, again, is he, is he sick to his stomach and so he can only have, like, you know, bread and whatever was in that cup? Um, seems to me what he, Frodo, what, what is Frodo's first thought when he sees this, right? Um, Right, Mike is reminding us of the bread that Gildor and company served uh, the hobbits, so of course the plainness of the fare is all relative, right? True, true. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, oh, hang on, we're thinking about windows. 
Do we know for a fact there are no windows? The only thing that we're told about that is that there is little other light. Now, I mean, it's likely dark outside, so if there were windows or a skylight, there would be little other light. Uh, um, but the way that Gandalf says there is little other light does make it sound to me, yeah, it's all about the light sources, Matt. Um, and I agree, Fourth Dauntless. Fourth Dauntless is pointing to the, the always. There is always a fire here all the year round but there is little other light. Um, the use of always at the beginning of that sentence does, I agree with you, Fourth Dauntless, seem to imply that the light conditions are stable, right? Are nearly universal. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think this is meant to be a room that is only lit by fire. Uh, you know, that the firelight, the dim lighting, uh, and, you know, from the fire only, um, is definitely, I, I, I think, meant to be a feature of this room. Um, there are plenty of other places and opportunities that the elves of Rivendell have to be under the starlight, right? To uh, uh, be in a bright, sunny place. Um, this is the place where they go to be uh, enclosed and, you know, just to be... Uh, just to be lit by the fire. It is like a meditation chamber in some ways. That, that is, does seem to be how its usage is described, right? Um, it stands empty and quiet, and people come here who wish for peace and thought. Um, you want to be away from the bright lights and everything else, right? Um, it's dim here. Um, dim and cozy. Um... Yeah, I mean, Amy, as far as the year-round fire is concerned, I mean, it does kind of seem like it might get rather hot in summer. Uh, but, uh, oh, interesting. Frumius Bujum is thinking it's like a throwback to before the sun and moon. Uh, maybe. Maybe. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of that before. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that idea. Um yeah. Yeah, Iwan Dillian is thinking that it's like, um, uh, you know, we know that, uh, you know, the elves love twilight. You know, they love dimness, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. If it's, um, if it, yeah... It could be that there are windows with curtains closed, but again, Arden Crayon, I don't know why there would be. Um, if they're always closed, right? Um, if the point of this room is to be dim and lit by firelight, which does, I agree with Fourth Thoughtless, it does sound that way. I don't see any reason why they would want them. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. His head seemed sunk in sleep upon his breast, and a fold of his dark cloak was drawn over his face. Um, I don't think this is the surprise. Again, this is my argument against uh, 
Bilbo's being the one to spring the surprise on Frodo, right? Because this does not look like someone who is ready to jump out and yell surprise, right, when Frodo comes in. Um, I I love the narrative of Bilbo deliberately giving his seat, like literally his chair, uh, at the feast to Frodo, letting Frodo be the center of attention, not distracting even Frodo, because think also he's going to realize this is Frodo's, remember all of these impressions on Frodo, right? Is he seeing Arwen for the first time? Is he's looking at Elrond and Gorfindel and Gandalf and seeing them revealed as, you know, lords of, 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 of you know, power. This is, you know, the feast is a big deal. And like, does he have an inkling of what that experience is going to be like for Frodo? But he also knows that if he, Bilbo, is there, Frodo's not going to pay attention to any of this, right? So he wants Frodo to take this in. He wants Frodo to be there. Um, but uh, but he's so he's going to surprise him here in the Hall of Fire afterwards and then just kind of falls asleep hoping he was going to wake up. Um, I don't know. That he got distracted by a poem does sound a lot like Bilbo, Tony. Um, uh yeah, not sure. Not sure the status of the sl- again. If this is meant to be in the end a kind of joke at Bilbo's expense, right? Um, or um, uh, or if this is uh, that is you know, I, again like the the sort of the the ironic uh, sort of anticlimax of Bilbo's uh, planned surprise, um, or if it suggests that Bilbo was not in fact planning it, right? Well, we'll see a little bit more. Um, We'll see a little bit more when we get into their conversation next time. Um, but uh, so we've met Bilbo. We've not quite gotten to Frodo's surprise and reaction. Right. Um, but we'll uh, we'll begin with that next week. We'll be here next week for class as usual. Um, I'll be away the week after that. But I will be here. Uh, I, I will be here next week. Okay, excellent. So thanks, everybody, for joining me for our discussion of the text here tonight. Uh, We're going to do, as always, uh, our field trip. I see there's uh, a large number of people with us on Twitter tonight, which is great. Good to to join you guys. Um, And it's funny to the Twitter folks. So as you can see behind me, I got a green screen. So like, uh, and, uh, well... I got a green screen because there's like a real pro uh, streamer in my household now, namely my 11-year-old son, Matthias, who informed me, like, we need to up our game here and get a green screen, uh, which is why the feed looks different on Twitch, for those of you who are watching on Twitch, because, again, like, now I've got a pro in the house. Um, But, of course, it was only when I turned it on that I'm like... But I don't have a filter for the green screen on Twitter, so the Twitter folks are going to see me with a green cloth in the background, which is all good. Uh, totally fine. Anyway, uh, so um, for those of you who are uh, have are, are with me there on Twitter, if you want to join us for the field trip, just go to um, uh, go to uh, uh, twitch.tv slash signumu, S-I-G-N-U-M-U, uh, and we will... Uh, um, uh, and you can join. You can you can join us there. So I'm going to shut uh, the the Twitter feed off for now because uh, there's not, not going to be anything to see uh, uh, through that feed. Uh, so I'll say goodbye to the folks on the town and to the folks on Twitter, and we will continue on Twitch for the uh, 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 for our for our Lotro field trip. Uh, so uh, thanks everybody.
Okay, great. All right. Um, very good. Now, Valori couldn't be here this week. She had mentioned last week that she was going to be away this week. All right. Um, but we're going to carry... We're on Honor now, the Honor server in Lotro here tonight. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my uh, my professional streamer is, uh, you know, has been introducing some changes here because, uh, you know, he's got to do things properly. Um, okay. All right. So let's uh let's do our let's do our field trip. So um oh yes, I, I announcement. Thank you, Dorward. Um uh let me repeat that before we do go on the field trip. So um to celebrate our 71st session, we're doing a drawing for either a free ticket uh, to any one of our regional moots of your choice, uh, the registration ticket, or um, uh, an anytime audit uh, seat uh, in, in any of our courses of your choice. So you can choose between those. We'll have a drawing. We'll choose two winners. Um, uh, uh, and uh, and so just send an email to info at signumu.org uh, to... Uh, to officially enter the drawing and we'll do the drawing on August 16th, uh, which seems a good day to give away presents. Uh, cause that's my birthday. So, uh, that why not? We'll do it on that day. Um, your early birthday boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Almost there. Almost there. Okay. Uh, so let us head out. We're going back to Kalondim. We had just explored. We got to the transition. The elf-dwarf line, architecturally speaking. Um, north of Duolan, we got to that uh, harbor, which was built by Thorin's company, which we totally nailed that architecturally. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, so I, I wanted to see what is north in the unpopulated and indeed, uh, if memory serves, largely haunted area uh, of Eridluin. So we're going to see if we can make it up to the Ward Spire this evening. That is the ambitious goal of our explorations. It took me forever to find the Ward Spire when I was first... Even everybody else trying to do that deed. What can I do for you? I'm glad for the sake of Narnian the champion on this server that uh, we're going to a comparatively easy area. Narnian the champion on Honor is only 50. So he would still have trouble in some places. Okay. All right, so we'll head back up to um, what's uh, maybe I should wait for folks to arrive. No, I think yeah, let's wait for folks. There's some folks arriving and waiting here, so let's give it a couple minutes before we go tearing off to the north here. 
Yeah, so for those who are uh, uh, new joining us, we're, we're doing a, a sort of an exploration, a detailed exploration of uh, the Lotro game world, looking at how they, uh, through the structure of the world, are adapting Tolkien's story. And in particular, we're looking at a lot of historical elements. We've been sort of following along in the story, but of course, uh, the, we're moving slowly enough through the text that... Uh, uh, you know, we have plenty of time to explore pretty much every square foot of ground in the game world on the way. Um, okay. Um, all right, let's head off. Okay, so... Hang on, before I leave Duoland, I need to look at the roofs. I keep forgetting to do that. Yep, okay, we do have the green, like, scale roofs going on here. Not on the main buildings. And there's that spire business, right, on top of the that big building. But it's got the red roof underneath it. But there is evidence of the green roofs. But So, it looks like the architecture in... Duoland is not fundamentally different from the architecture in Kalondim. And even, arguably, the beaten-up architecture in the vineyard, or near the vineyard, um, is probably from this same period, too. It's just been abandoned, and has stood abandoned for some little time, not long enough for it to get knocked about, but enough for it to get shabby looking they haven't taken out a home equity loan to fix it up yeah exactly there and now the goblins have moved in and there goes the neighborhood but um uh but yeah it's clearly um i i do think it was it, it looks like it was from that same kind of area um i did notice that the spires uh that are up you know, are like stalactites in uh, Kellendim are on the bases. We, we'd noticed that they were on the bases of the platforms here in Duilan. Right. Like yeah, the ones underneath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, it may just be that there are, you know, there is not the opportunity for overhang, uh, you know, with the topography of Kellendim compared to the, the, you know, being perched up on the, the cliffside here in Duiland. Um uh, but still, yeah, that was an interesting little feature. I'm wondering how those platforms can stand up without any visible load bearing. Because I, I think they need a pillar or two. I always keep thinking they're going to fall off. Yeah, not really sure about that. I mean, they're not like fungi on on a on a tree uh, trunk or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Like shelf fungus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They look a little bit like that. They're nicer. Um, interesting. The uh, signpost here is completely wooden, even a wooden base. Clearly made by the dwarves, as the shape of the the wooden signpost here is very reminiscent of the the wooden post or the stone posts that we see uh, down here in the dwarf area. Interesting. They just wouldn't use stone because it would last longer. You'd think, right? Um, uh, 
The implication, of course, is that the wooden signpost is much newer, um, you know, comparatively recent. And either replacing an old signpost, hang on, such as, for one. instance, like it might be this one, which is made of stone. They'll throw Maybe the elves Gondam. used the a dwarven style when they made the signpost near Kalandum, or Dwelon? Maybe. Maybe. Um... I don't know. Yeah, Harneth was just thinking the same thing. It could be the elves were deliberately imitating the dwarf style. And they don't Harneth mind. Harneth is very wise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Notice, I mean, just when you compare signposts with the other, notice how plain the other one was. What was on the other signpost? It would have been talking about the Shire, right? Because that's what's across the... Yeah, it points to Needle Hole. Right. Can somebody see what's actually... I forgot that the, you actually can interact with these signs. Gondaman. I'll go take a look. No, three. Yeah, somebody, somebody go check that out. I have the fastest steed that's not a war steed. Okay. This journeyman riding is currently on sale. Because yes, the, the I noticed there was only one destination marked on there, and it's the dwarf road still. So things like signposts you'd think would be maintained by the dwarves, but only if they care about you know the place that the sign is for. Interestingly enough, it points to the Falathlorn homesteads. Okay, okay. Oh right, Idrina was just suggesting that. Okay, so the dwarves are definitely not going to care about that. Um, could it be a joke, a kind of joke by the developers, since those were a relatively recent development? You know, since those that those homesteads were put in after the rest of the landscape had been put in, that when they installed a, a, a signpost pointing to that new area, they made it look like a new modern nouveau signpost? It may very well be, because I actually have screenshots from 2007 where the homesteads weren't built. It was just, you know, blank landscape. It wasn't even carved out for the houses to be placed there. Right, right, right. Well, that's interesting. But I would think it has to be by elves, because, again, the dwarves, like, they're not going to put a post there. So you'd have to imagine, within the game world, you'd have to imagine that this was the elves who made that, and they just decided, rather than making a spiffy, elvish-looking post, they instead made it fit with the surroundings. Namely, the elf road. Okay. All right. So here we are on the northern shoulder of the cliffs here, and we've got spiders Giant spiders. Not a big fan of giant spiders. I can't think why. Well, it's... I'm totally willing to forgive them in the Shire, even though arguably that's the most absurd 
place that you see giant spiders anywhere in the game. Like, you know, that there would be giant spiders and, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm totally blanking where the quarry is. I cannot recall the word. Um, scary. Thank you. Sure, yeah. Oh man. But I just was completely drawing a blank there. Um, yeah. Uh, again, the idea that there are giant spiders and scary is, uh, is, uh, you know, silly. Uh, but you know, I'm totally willing to live with that because it's, it's thematic, right? You know, the, the sort of the, the ties back to, you know, the, the Hobbit home, base, right, being me, me in the Shire, like when you start a Hobbit character, and the way that that gets kind of thematically grounded in the Hobbit, the book, right, with spiders and wolves and bears and goblins, you know, it works for me. I, I can I can forgive it. I can forgive the lack of plausibility because it works sort of thematically. Um but, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of there being giant spiders, like, all over the place. Um, and there are really a ton of giant spiders um, in the game. And again, I understand, you know, in part, this is a result of the developers' commitment to sticking to Tolkien's world, right? I mean, like, the fact that they had a fairly restricted set of mobs to work with to put in the game in the first place unless they just wanted to completely make stuff up, which they have resisted doing very well. Um, so I get that. You know, I get that there's a level of difficulty there. But uh, still, there's a lot of giant spiders. Anyway, what is this? I thought... It's like a mix of elvish and warvish kind of does look that way, doesn't it? It's very old. It's broken. It's green. Very noticeable. Covered with leaves. It's, yeah, it's, it's covered in ivy. What do we think? It's interesting that it seems to be made of multiple kinds of rock, though. Yes. Or maybe it's got a plaster over, like a paint, paint job over the the main rock, though. Yes. You mean like the shinier bits in the middle there? Well, I was thinking of the gray rock toward the base, and there's also a strip of metal, I think. Like yeah, I think that probably dirt. is metal, maybe copper. What was on the top? Was there a statue there? The designs on that middle row don't look very dwarvish. I mean, they're round. They've got curves, yeah, which yeah. is not very dwarvish. So where are we exactly? Halvlin. We're in the middle of nowhere. On the other side of the River Loon. This thing looks very ancient. Much more ancient than honestly anything we've seen, with the possible exception of the older, the oldest layer of elf architecture in Kalandem, 
like the ruined tower by, yeah, the, yeah. by the river. Um, that might be this old. But even that, with all of the filigree work that we could still see, I mean, yes, the tower was collapsed, but we could still make out what it was. The way that this has eroded, like, was this a pedestal with a statue on top? Was this... Was there some other kind of figure up there? Like, it looks like it might be like a, I don't know, like a ball, maybe, on the top of this, which was broken off, or like shattered, and we can only see the bits of it around there at the bottom. Um, I mean, it's, it's... This is definitely more weathered um, than we saw in other places. So I'm wondering... I don't think there's enough space to put a statue on top unless it's a really small one. Or unless, again, that... like See, what I'm thinking is the way that it kind of comes out there at the top would have made like a little pedestal, which a a statue could have been on. Um, The bit that looks like a star, it actually looks more like a spear. Um, I jumped on the rock nearby and got a better angle at it. It really is making more of a spear head shape. Maybe. Actually kind of looks like a rocket. Yeah, actually, from this angle, it really does look much more deliberately star-like than broken. That's very regular. Looks like it was at least an eight-pointed star, though, if it was a star. Maybe more. Okay. So, this must be very old. So if this were a First Age ruin, it looks like a First Age monument of one type or other. I mean, why would anyone build this? This is clearly like an obelisk, like a monument, not a, not a, um, you know, a tower or something like that, you know, like a watchtower or a residential tower, any other kinds of towers we've been looking at. Um, yeah, it's definitely not. It's not hollow in any way. It's definitely yeah. obelisk. Yeah. Okay. First stage. Map. Where are we? Here. River Loon. Houthlin. So we'll be like up here, right? Just north of the name Kalondim on the map. So this is the arid Loon. We're still on the wrong side. The, the reason I'm looking at the map here is I'm trying to uh, remember like Beleriand as was, right? Is there any chance that there could be a connection with an actual First Age event that we know of, right? And my answer is no, because it's still on the wrong side of the Blue Mountains. Uh, you know, Linden over here, um, this bit of land over here, which is where Gilgalad lived... Um, back when, you know, Gilgalad was alive, um, was on the other side. You know, that was like part of Osiriand, right? That was that was the last bit of Beleriand uh, that still survived. So this monument is built near the Blue Mountains, but still on the eastern side of the Blue Mountains. So if it was built in the First Age, who would have built it? Well, here's the thing. It can't be built by elves. Because it would have lasted longer. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it would have. Maybe. But, I mean, we do see plenty of elf stuff that has been, you know, collapsing and stuff. Even from a more recent time than the first age. But still, even apart from that, though, there weren't that many elves who lived here. Or rather, the only elves who did live on this side of the Blue Mountains were the green elves, right? Like the Nandor. And they wouldn't have built stone obelisks, right? So, I can't imagine that an elf, a first age elf, built an obelisk like this. Which means, because again, it it would have had to be a green elf. I mean, the Feanorians are the ones, like the Noldor are the ones that you would imagine building a, a stone obelisk if they want to commemorate something. And the Noldor definitely were not here. They were not, none of them lived uh, to the east of the Blue Mountains during the First Age. So, dwarves are curious, men. curious, I saw. Hmm? In the decorated layer, like that, that row. Yeah. Um, on the top side, it looks like there's like a triangle shape and then a square shape and the triangle shape back and forth. But in some of the rectangles, I swear I'm seeing the head of a horse. Like the head and neck of a horse in a couple of places. Uh, I see. Right here? In profile? Yeah. Yeah. Like the head and Maybe. whether there's a horse. In, in a a little line for the bridle, maybe, maybe. I, th- I see what you're seeing. I'm not positive that it's a deliberate carving, but it looks. But you know what those circles remind me of? Those circles remind me of the swirls in like the Barrow Downs. You know, the ancient human artifacts. It's not the it's same. Funny you should say that. Yeah. Look off into the distance to the north. To the north. Standing uh, stones. Barrows, yeah. 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 So, because see, I can imagine humans from the first age building this. Because this would have been actually... Okay. Theory. Theory. Theory is, this obelisk was built by men um, men of the First Age when they were gathering here, because this is not far from where they would have gathered to cross the Blue Mountains and enter Beleriand, because they, they entered in Osirian, remember, and met the unfriendship of the Green Elves. Um, mm-hmm. So it would have been down in the southern section of the Blue Mountains that they would have crossed over anyway. And one can imagine um, them building an obelisk to commemorate, you know, this time before they left. Because presumably they would have dwelt here for some time. Like maybe time to build barrows uh, on the slopes up there. And, uh, you but know... The, it's the exact same shape as Spire Kelidul. Well, I, I see that similarity, but I'm not sure I, I agree with the exact same shape. First of all, like the macroscopic shape is quite different. That is to say, the whole obelisk is very different. Um, whereas we have like even so I'm let me uh, let me let me show this here on screen. 
the oh hang on okay here we go compare and contrast um it's it's definitely similar um that when I say it's macroscopically different, what I mean is we had this 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 pattern was something that we observed throughout Keladul, this like wide base and then the little bit up at the top, right? Mm-hmm. Um and you know, whereas we don't see that, you know, what we're seeing in the game is a uh um you know, just one big obelisk. This certainly looks older than that. Now it's possible that the you know the Keladul could the that symbol of Keladul have been modeled after this obelisk? That would make sense if they'd seen this and then made their own version because the comparison that I was seeing was that the main section between like the base and then the star was that green stone the door's been like and used on all their markers. Right. And then, you know, the base, the two bases are definitely different, but yeah, a, like where we saw that horse, that little segment on up is exactly exactly the same is, shape, is, just different materials. Yeah. Yes, it is, it is. So yes, maybe they are um, now. You could say that the choice to kind of replicate or like recapture um, this spire, right down in Keladul might be taken as an argument that this was a dwarvish construction in the first place. And so, you know, they're like, ah, this is a monument of the ancient first age dwarves, say, um, who would have dwelt somewhere nearby. They were further north than this in Beleriand, but, you know, um, it's still quite close to the mountains, so so it could be. Um, but, but again, it doesn't look especially the carvings, whether there's a horse head or not. Um, it, uh, like, again, this circular business does not look very dwarvish. It really doesn't. Um, so, yeah, I'm still... I'm like, I really want to buy an admin camera. I still like my theory that this is a human monument and that the dwarves took it as a model... Okay, I'm riding up to the standing stones now to see what can be made of this. Because, see, especially if we have a barrow, and I want to look for any markings on the stones. So here we have barrows and dead folks. We've got skeletons. Really weird standing stones that just look like giant anthills. And nothing carved on them. They're pitted and marked by time, but don't seem to be skeletons. Let's see. Belt is decorated, but relatively plain. Sword. I don't see. I'm looking for any kind of iconography or anything. Yeah. Wow, that that cross piece looks like a jawbone or something. Like, not his own jawbone, but... Yeah, I don't see anything in the back either. Of his belt, I mean. Yeah. 
No, nothing, no symbols that I could see on any of the skeleton's gear. Nor anything carved in these rocks, though they have all these... They're pitted in ways that makes me want to stare at them and see if I can see patterns, but... Hang on, there's a... a white upright stone in the middle of this barrel up here. Yeah, it definitely places like a plinth of marble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely cut. Hang on, we got a, a white here. Dead dude with flesh on his bones. He's got a bow. Still no symbols. Oh, wait, what's what's on his belt? His belt buckle. Is that a rune? Can't quite make it out. He's got gems on his bow. Little tiny gems, but it's interesting. If the mobs are going to aggro you, can you please stay away from them so Clark can take a look at them, please? Yeah. It's all right. Yeah, I got, I, I, I got to look. And here's another one over here. Yeah. And the things on their shins, right, down on their legs. Again, no symbols that I can see. Same thing with the... They're always yawning. Like, oh, darn it, I had just zoomed in on your face, and then you walk away. Yeah, no, nothing on the brow there. I was hoping for a symbol in the middle of his thing, but no. No. Okay, so this is... These are also cut stones. Yep, here we have it. There's a ruin to our west. Woo! Hey, look, it's got a... That's a, that's a carving, right? That little hook business? Yeah, this is a quest. Okay, so that... Um, but I can't make much of it as a symbol, that sort of fish hook-like thing. Hmm. Not sure. Not sure what to do with that. But okay. The shape of this, though... The proportions of this, let me say it that way, the proportions of this are at least similar to our friend the obelisk, the green obelisk, down there. Obviously, very plain, but this is just a little marble thing. But again, the fact that this is obviously a very ancient burial ground, it doesn't even have the classic swirlies of the... The uh, you know the sort of the brie that what we were taking to be some of the the art the the artistic patterns of the natives the native human culture like the pre Numenorean ancient human culture. Okay. Well, interesting. Where are we on the map? Okay. There's a ruin over there. There's a ruin to the west. Well, let's keep going east. Let's work our way back to the river, and then we'll go yep. back the other way next time and look at the other ruins. We're not going to be able to solve all the mysteries mm -hmm. here. But um, What? What, what? what? Your maze won't be able to solve all the mysteries? Not in one night. Not in one night. Like, here's a mystery. Why is that one tree covered with snow and the rest of them are not?
Um, Ross ran out of titanium white. Uh, well, some of these have blossoms on them. Is that a blossoming tree? Kind of looks like a pine, but that's okay. All right. Okay, there is a ruin, and that is oh, that's well, that's on the other side of the river. Oh, so is this the city that we were talking about, seeing from the ward spire? Mm-hmm. Okay. That you can never get to. Okay. Who made the ward spire? Let's look at it from a distance. Oh, it's pretty big. It's pretty fat. Dwarves, obviously. Obviously a dwarvish construction. You can see by the not work there. See, that's the kind of decoration I'd have expected in that central row of the obelisk, the green obelisk, right? Instead, we get the circle business. Mm-hmm. Yep. No circles anywhere. We never see circles in dwarvish architecture decoration because they're chiseling into stone and they're, you know, so they, they don't chisel in circles. And the wards, we can't get any close. Okay, so that city we're seeing across... The question was, is this a Numinous? Definitely, that's definitely not a Numinous. It's even in the wrong direction. Um, that is, it's slightly to the south of us. Um, yeah, it is, Deathman, interesting. What? Oh, it's the underside of my horse. It's my horse's underbelly that I'm staring at there. Um, it is interesting that this is listed in the Elf Ruins... Deed. Seeing all of the elf ruins, but I mean, I'm sorry. That is not elvish. There is nothing elvish about this ruin. Nothing at all. It's a dwarvish ruin. Date. Mm. It looks very similar in its style to the older dwarf ruins that we saw. Not the new construction down like by the docks in Coadul, but the older ones up on top of the hill. Um, this doesn't have the metal bits with the rust dripping down that we saw up there. But the style is similar. It's obviously much further decayed than the other ones. What would this have been? It's called the Ward Spire. So what would this have been? Why would dwarves have built this here? Predates Caledul, which again clearly dates from the times of Thorin, when Thorin and his folk were living here. Um, and you know we haven't yet seen evidence from the earlier, from the other areas um, uh, that you know like maybe we will see in the dwarf areas evidence of dwarves having been around for longer. So to some extent, we may just have to withhold judgment on the ward spire here, but assuming. It's significantly older. Like, assuming it's a second or third age, or second or first age construction. I can't imagine it'd be a first age construction. That's really old. And this is like the. You'd think the relief carvings in the side of the rock would be gone if this were, you know, what, like 8,000 or 10,000 years old. Yeah, there'd be much more erosion on it. Yeah. So it's probably second or even 
third age construction. So, I mean, we are down at the... Well, I was going to say at the very end of the Blue Mountains, except this was part of the Blue Mountains, too, back in the day, presumably. That is, before the, you know, continent was cracked, and the Gulf of Loon presumably formed in the context of the cracking of, you know, the sinking of the drowning of Beleriand. So, um, yeah, it's got to be a more recent one, in which case, who? Longbeard? Dower hands. Dower hands. We'll have to see. Dower hands can like clean their houses. Yeah, for this we'll have to see if we can fit it into um, the patterns. You know, we'll have to kind of. I think we will have to kind of suspend judgment on this uh, to see if we can fit it in with the other dwarf architecture that we see around. So we may have to. We may have to come back on this one, but um, but let's look across the river here. That is definitely human, right? No, not definitely. It could be a dwarf place, kind of like that. What's the name of that um, that dwarf city up in the northern part of the uh, um, North Downs? Othricar. Othricar, yeah. Um, it, it look it reminds me a little bit of that. And when I take a look at it, I, I just see straight Arnorian ruins that we've seen all it over Breland. It really does look a lot like an Arnorian ruin. It would be an Arnorian town. Not a very big one. Yeah, no, not a very big one, but it's not just a keep. It's not just a single keep. And some of it fell into the river. Maybe. Oh, there, yeah, you're right. There is a chunk down there. But that looks like a chunk of wall that tumbled down rather than, like, thinking that the river, that it used to extend further than it does. Right, not like a numinous. Exactly. Did not go down into the river. This is clearly on, the, on, on a hill. Yeah, no, I agree. This is, looking at, what I'm looking at, the thing that's most distinctive, first of all, apart from the color of the stone, which does look exactly like the, all the other Arnorian ruins that we've seen everywhere else, um, I'm looking at these arches that you can see along the base of that tower and again along the wall over here. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to decide if those arches were hexagonal, like the arches over here, or rounded. And I think they're rounded. I think we can see the pillars, right? Like the pillars with the arches on top of the pillars. Like row of arches, or row of pillars connected by arches, just like we see in uh, Esteldeen, right? We can can go down to the river and take a look at the one that fell in. Oh, that's true. We could see that one more closely. That's a good call, but I'm pretty sure that's what... And yet, maybe if we look closer, we'll even even see an Arnorian star. I would certainly not be uh, surprised to see that. So, why were the Arnorians building a fortress, or at least a little fortress, here, um, along the eastern bank of the... Yeah, so we're on the... It's the Loon, not the Brandywine. It doesn't go to Illuminus. Yeah, well, it goes up, but it's the... It is also the river that goes goes right by Illuminus. 
And so, I mean, I cannot imagine, I mean, literally cannot imagine when you look at the big map, right? Um, cannot imagine Elendil's people not making an access way between the Loon and Enuminous, right? Whether or not it was navigable, um, but at least a road, right? I mean, there's no way, especially knowing that um, Elendil was friends with Gilgalad, who lived just down the river over here in Linden, right? I mean, we there's have stars. N- there's no way. There is no way that that uh, he did not that they did not use the River Loon fairly regularly as a way to go to and fro and visit the elves. So yeah. Oh yeah, and you can see from here it is clearly classic. Uh, classic, aren't it? Can we get all the way across the river? Oh yeah, I'm standing on the the piece of rock. Okay. Great. It's very definitive and distinct. Yeah. So, yeah, Deathman, I would think that it would be like an Arnorian estate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Classic. Except stars pointed upwards. I noticed that. All of them are. Hmm. Well, by our previous Breland reasoning... You know what I think that suggests? Hmm. A Cardolingian fortress. Possibly. Ah, let's think about that geopolitically. Okay, so you are Arnor, Fornost, Arthedain. You are dominating this land here, north of Bree, up to Fornost, over to Anuminus. This was the heart of Arthedine here, and we saw that Rudaur was here from, like, in the North Trollshaws, really almost everything in the Trollshaws was Rudaur, up to bordering, tragically bordering Angmar, of course, uh, and then down in the south in the Lone Lands, and especially over in the, um, in the Barrow Downs is where the Cardo Engines were, Location-wise, first of all, this is no strategic point from an Arnorian Civil War perspective, right? So, you know, it's hard to imagine this was a strategic fortress in that war. We're not far north of the line in as much as the Dwarf Road was was kind of the frontier, as we saw in Breland. Um... The Shire, we know that the Shire was full of hobbits by the time of the fall, well, that's by the time of the fall of Fornost. Yeah, because Bullroar and the hobbits sent some archers to... Yeah, exactly. So, so let's, let's imagine, as Deathman42 is suggesting... Let's imagine, remember when we found the Rudaran symbol in the middle of, uh, of, of, like right next to Fornost, right? Mm-hmm. In like the middle of Arthedanian territory up there in the North Downs. And the, my theory was that that was an estate of the house, which eventually would separate away, you know, like, which would become Rudaur, right? Would be before the civil wars began. 
Proto-Rudauer. Proto-Rudauer, right, exactly. It was a Proto-Rudauerian uh, place. What if this is a Proto-Cartilingian? Um, uh, and I know... That would make sense. Okay, yeah, so this is a... So let's theorize that. It would have been an estate kind of in the middle of nowhere, to be honest, right? But not quite the middle of the middle of nowhere, as it's, uh, you know, on the... Right, right on the River Loon, right? Um, so they would have had access to the sea. I would imagine that these would probably have been um, like elf friends, right, who made this. That would make sense, yeah. Because they would want to have access to be able to go down and visit the elves who were in Dueland, right? We were imagining they were in Dueland, even if Kellandim hadn't been built yet, because that's more of a departing thing. Um but Dueland would have been built. Remember, we were imagining Elendil landing there at the spot, at that little, you know, that little spot by the river that was being commemorated. Um, uh, yeah, so a, a, a set of elf friends decided to build a little estate here along the river. And then there's the ward spire. There's that dwarvish, squat little dwarvish construction on the on the very just corner of that hill at the end of the mountain range the modern mountain range my post first age mountain range divided by the river and the gulf probably a third age construction well all right we'll see um Oh, no, see, but Deathman, I don't think that those barrows are Numenorean burials. The Numenorians go in for big tombs. Those burials clearly predate. There's a, it's an elvish, it's an, a, an old human civilization. I'm thinking the barrows are first age. I'm thinking the barrows are from, like, you know the folks that Finrod Felagon ran into, right? And when the green elves come in, they're like, can you tell your loser friends to get out of Assyrian, you know, before we, you know, get mad? Um, it was like those guys, those humans, their immediate generational predecessors are the ones who probably dwelt here for some time on this side of the Blue Mountains and made those barrows and built that obelisk, I'm guessing, before they went across, right? Or even to commemorate the crossing. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and then the dwarves came and built the ward spire for some reasons best known to themselves. But maybe that will become clearer as we search the uh, the dwarvish section of Ered Lewin more. There are a few more ruins up here in Haldalin, as we were seeing, uh, which I, needless to say, want to explore. We'll, so we'll do those, and then we'll come down to Gondaman and go south from Gondaman into Rathtarag here. Um, uh, that that'll, that'll be, be a, a lot of fun. That'll be as that, so. That's the archer trajectory. It will be several more sessions before we at least three sessions, I would think, uh, going through all that material before we get up there into the Vale of Thrain and and uh, into uh, uh, Sarnur and other places. So cool! All right, excellent. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for joining me. This has been a, a fun and informative field trip. I mean, discovering what could be a first-age human obelisk, that's kind of a big deal, right? Um, so, I, I kind of uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited about that. Anyway, thanks everybody for joining me. See you guys next week for another Exploring the Lord of the Rings and our field trip to follow. So thanks everybody. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.